So today we are continuing in 2 Corinthians, and uh, as uh, Michael just read, we're going through the entire chapter 7. Next week we'll be in chapter 8 through chapter 9, verse 5. And um, I've titled this sermon, The Joy of Reconciliation, The Joy of Reconciliation. And I'm sure you can think of many things that bring you joy, and oftentimes reconciliation, being reconciled with other people, um, usually aren't at the top of that list. There's many things that bring me joy. Um, one would be just would be Mondays, for example. It's my day off where I get to do fun things with Nancy. We go to coffee shops, restaurants, go on walks. It's just a, it's just a good day that I always look forward to. Another thing that brings me joy is being with my adult kids and my grandkids and just seeing them all interact. And it's just fun to be on this side of life and to see them just um, living life and enjoying each other and not needing mom and dad so much. Another thing that brings me joy is when the Rockies beat the Dodgers. So um, I have been lacking joy for a few years now. Um, another is, of course, um, is being reminded of God's love for me, a sinner. Um, that undeserved grace just brings me great joy when I, when I think of it. Interestingly enough, as I've been thinking about this passage and thinking about the joy that we're going to talk about today that Paul experiences, that when I look back, that I've experienced great joy when I've been reconciled in relationships where there's been tension. Um, relationships where maybe I've sinned against somebody or they've sinned against me, and, but the joy when God brings us back together. And another way I've experienced joy is uh, Nancy and I have had an opportunity to take people through CTO. Um, it's, a, it's a curriculum that we use for uh, for reconciling relationships. It's a six-month biblical uh, curriculum, and uh, we feel super inadequate when we take people through it. It's not our favorite thing. We don't think we're all that good at it, but we've seen God um, bring reconciliation to relationships, and it just brings great joy to see people um, living uh, the way that God has designed them to live. On the other hand, I can't think of anything that sucks the joy out of me more than being unreconciled to somebody else or seeing two Christians that, um, that um, refuse to reconcile. It just, it's just joyless. It sucks the joy right out of me. There's not many human endeavors that bring joy like the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation is not simply a message to be reconciled to the Father. It is, first and foremost, it is evangelism. The message of reconciliation is proclaiming the good news that Jesus came to set the captives free from the tyranny of sin and Satan. But it's more than that. The ministry of reconciliation involves, uh, it goes way past being reconciled with the Father. It involves Christians being reconciled to one another. And the reason that this, this ministry of reconciliation is so important is that when we live unreconciled lives with one another, um, God gets, doesn't get the glory. We don't have the joy, and it affects our mission. There's nothing worse than proclaiming the gospel or the ministry of reconciliation while being unreconciled with other people. It's actually hypocritical. Every believer is called to the ministry of reconciliation, where we're, where, where we're reconciled to others, and we're doing everything we can to see others reconciled to one another. Ultimately, many Christians who have been reconciled to the Father 
and have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, don't live this out. I don't always live this out. Sometimes it's just easier to be mad, to not forgive, to not take the risk and confess. But the ministry of reconciliation is rooted in the first and second commandment, to love God and to love people. That's our, that's our motivation. That's, our, that's, what, that's what it's rooted in. And when we've been reconciled to God and ignore the ministry of reconciliation, especially as it pertains to Christian relationships, we receive the grace of God in vain. We trample upon God's grace. And I want to um, remind you, like Paul is, Paul is a pretty intense writer, and he's a pretty uh, exhortive, you know, he exhorts when he writes. But these, when, when we hear these type of things like we're going to hear today, these are the... Um, these are the imperatives of Scripture. We need to know that, that it's all rooted in God's love. Um, every other uh, religion in the world says, um, obey, and then you'll be accepted. Christianity, the good news is, is that we've been fully accepted, fully loved. Therefore, what? We obey. That's just an important reminder, I think, as we look at this today. When we grab hold of the ministry of reconciliation, we can experience joy in three surprising ways that we're going to see today. First of all, we're going to see joy from God's comfort. We experience joy when God comforts us. We're going to see joy from seeing others repent when there's reconciliation. And we're going to see joy in seeing others rejoice. We experience joy when we see others joyful. With all of these, what all these uh, aspect, what all these have in common is caring for the spiritual well-being of others at our own risk. In fact, I would just make a blanket statement that you will not experience maximum joy unless you are engaged in relationship with other believers and you are recon- being reconciled with other believers. Whether that be the believer in your house, which is a good place to start, or other believers in the church. I thought it would be good, we haven't done this in a while, just to do a high-level overview of what's happening in 2 Corinthians, what's happening in the life of Paul, why he's writing this, because there's, there's so many moving parts, and I think it'll give us a little bit of context to understand um, the passage today. So if we go backwards, Paul landed in Corinth, in the region of Achaia, in the, in the city of Corinth, and he evangelized and he established a church there. Many people came to Christ. He was there for 18 months. After being there, he left and he went on to his missionary journey and he landed in Ephesus. And while he was in Ephesus, the church in Corinth wrote him a letter. And then he responded to that letter and he wrote what we know as 1 Corinthians. And he sent that letter to Corinth from Ephesus uh, by the hands of Timothy, one of his ministry partners. Timothy reported back to Paul in Ephesus that I handed off the letter, and it's bad down there. There's apostasy. There's false teachers. Um, they're, they're living in a licentious way. They're, um, hey, Michael, I can't tell if you're sleeping there or not. Like, like that is like the weirdest thing at all. Like, I'm going to like put a, a Michael face on the front of that post. He's smiling at me. <laughs> Good to see you back there. Sorry, let's, I'm distracted. Um, so after, after Timothy returned and reported this growing apostasy, Paul immediately took off and went to Corinth. 
Um, he, he, he loves the people down there, and he needed to find out what in the heck is going on that they're, that they're um, falling for this, these, these false teachers. And by going to Corinth, Paul risked the certainty of affliction and conflict, but he was so compelled by the love of Christ and for the love of the Corinthians that he had to go. And that's really important, that Paul is driven by the love of Christ and the love of other people, and he will take massive risks because of that love for God and his love for other people. And when he went down there, unfortunately, um, it turned out to be a very short and painful visit because they completely rejected Paul. Uh, they, they rejected his apostleship, his authority, and they rejected his message. So he returned to Ephesus, and he wrote what we know is called the severe letter. That letter's been lost, but he, he wrote a severe letter, and he sent it to them uh, in the hands of Titus. Poor Timothy and Titus. They've got to take all the letters up, uh, to, to Corinth for Paul. So, so he wrote the letter, and back in 2 Corinthians 2.4, Paul describes this severe letter that he wrote. He says this, For I wrote to you, church, out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain. This is important. He isn't writing them. Even though they, they are rejecting him, he's not writing them to to shame them or to condemn them or to cause anguish. He says, I, I, I wrote to you through many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So he sent the letter with Titus. He waited in Ephesus for Titus to return and report. Titus never came. So Paul went to Macedonia. And while in Macedonia, um, Titus returned and, um, and gave Paul a report of, of how the church was doing in Corinth. And it was an encouraging report. And we're going to hear more about that today. And then Paul, after getting that encouraging report from Titus, Paul writes 2 Corinthians. And then Paul will make one other trip to Corinth to, to collect an offering um, for the poor in Jerusalem. And we're going to learn more about that the next couple of weeks. So today we're going to see Paul receive comfort and experience joy in the midst of great distress and affliction as a result of some very hard conversations with the church in Corinth. Paul's writing this letter in response to the good news that a majority of the Corinthian church had repented as a result of Paul's severe letter. And Paul still seems to be, he still has a bit of an edge in his writing and there's still, because there still seems to be an unrepentant minority who remains uh, against Paul and his message. Back in chapter 6, 11 through 13, we talked about this last week, Paul reiter reiterated his love for the church by stating not only is his mouth open to them, he's going to continue speaking truth to them, but his heart is open to them. He loves them. He's, he's, he has great affection for them. Paul spoke the gospel of grace to them in the very beginning when he was there for the first 18 months, and he will continue to remind them to stand in the gospel that they believed. His ministry of reconciliation in Corinth isn't finished just because they profess faith in Christ. And did you know that our ministry as a church isn't finished just, be, just when somebody comes to Christ? It actually just begins. Because the, the, um, uh, one of the primary jobs of the church is to bring believers to maturity, to, to uh, encourage them to not only um, believe the gospel, but to stand in the gospel. And one of the ways that we do that is that we we, we, we fight to have reconciled relationships. So he will not close his mouth or his heart to the church 
as he desires to see them reconciled and to live in unity. And there's a refrain that I'm going to talk about often through this message. And here it is. If you know, go. If you know, go. If you know somebody has something against you, go to them. If you know you have something against them, go to them. If you know that two, two believers have something against one another and they're unreconciled, go. If you know what? Go. I want you to remember that. It's, it's all over Scripture. And that's, it's not the American way. It's not it, when, when we know something, we just go, you know, it's none of my business. They'll work it out. But that's, that doesn't honor the Lord ultimately. In verse 2, Paul is most likely speaking to the unrepentant minority in the church who have locked arms with the false teachers and have maligned Paul and his message. Paul, and so Paul speaks to them in verse 2, make room in your hearts for us. A few of them have closed their hearts to Paul. Paul's saying, open up. You have no reason to stand against us. He says, we've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one, and we've taken advantage of no one. And Paul doesn't say this flippantly. Paul is a man who examines his heart. Paul's a man that wants to know if there's sin in his heart. Um, we see that in, um, in, uh, in other places where, where Paul says, um, why do I continue doing the things that I don't want to do? Why can't I do the things that I do want to do? That Paul is very introspective. So he doesn't say this flippantly, that we've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. He has examined his conscience, and he's determined that he's not sinned against the Corinthians. So he encourages them to open their heart to him as his heart of affection and love is open to them. He says this in verse 3. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul, as I said earlier, he doesn't want to bring condemnation. He doesn't want to destroy them. He doesn't want to bring shame to them. He once again affirms his love for them by acknowledging that they're in his heart to die together and to live together, meaning that, that he is forever bound with them in Christ's death and resurrection. That, that he died, they died to Christ, they died to their old self, so let's set the old man aside and let's live together reconciled lives for the glory of God. And he says in verse 4, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. That's a great understatement in Paul's vernacular. He says, because I want the best for you, I act boldly towards you. If I didn't care for you, I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't be bold towards you. If you know, go. If you know, open your mouth. Open your heart. Then he switches to affirming the majority who have repented and want a relationship with Paul and can't wait to re reconnect with Paul. Verse 4b. He says, I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. And before Paul describes the threefold source of overflowing, uh, overflowing joy, he wants to document his affections to the Corinthians, uh, his affections so the Corinthians would know more of his love and affection for them. He wants them to know the anguish he's, he was in, wondering if there would be uh, reconciliation. And what's going on here is that Paul sent Titus with the letter, the severe letter. T uh, Titus doesn't show up for a long time, and he is in anguish. Because he doesn't know if the church is going to want to reconcile with him. 
So he says in verse 5, he says, For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear, fighting without and fear within. Paul describes his mental and physical state of waiting for Titus to return with a report on how the Corinthians received the severe letter. The, body, the, the bodies of Paul and his companions had no rest. At every turn, they were afflicted. This is every turn, every, every hour, every week, every month. I don't know how long it was, but every turn, he was in great turmoil. They were fighting without, and they had fear within. We don't know what the fighting without is. It could have been starvation. They could have been thirsty. They could have lacked shelter. They could have been under persecution. But we do know what the fear within was that he had an overwhelming sense of worry that the Corinthians um, got the letter and they're going to continue to reject him. And he loves them so much that he had fear within. He had no rest. They were physically and emotionally exhausted. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been so worried, so distressed about a fractured relationship that you couldn't sleep? I have. Even in my own house, there's been times where I'm at odds with somebody else and I can't sleep. I want things right. I would suggest that this is what we should feel when we have unreconciled differences with another believer. We should not be able to sleep. In fact, this is probably what Paul meant in Ephesians when he said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you can go to sleep knowing that you're at odds with another believer, if you can go to sleep knowing that two other believers are at odds with one another, you don't care. You don't care. Or you don't know how it honors the Lord to be reconciled with others. Paul says in Romans that as far as it depends upon you, as far as it depends upon me, live at peace with everyone. I can't complete reconciliation, but I can do my part. I can seek forgiveness. I can forgive I can be the agent of reconciliation and say, hey, stop trashing that person. Do you need to forgive them? Can I walk alongside you? We should not be nonchalant toward unreconciled relationships, especially Christian relationships. If you know, go. Then Paul describes how he was comforted to the point of overflowing joy in his affliction in verses 6 and 7. We see Paul experience joy from God comforting him. In verse 6, he just described the, the, um, the, the distress that he was in physically and emotionally as he was waiting for the Corinthians' answer to see if they would be reconciled. And he experiences now great joy by God's comfort, verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus arrived, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he, he was comforted by you, church. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. Notice who the comforter here, here is. 
The comforter is never you or me. But oftentimes we're the means of comfort that God uses. That God is the comforter. But God. But God who comforts the downcast. God brought this comfort to Paul through the presence and report of a person named Titus. Paul started this entire letter off in chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, and the God of all comfort, who what comforts us in all our affliction. The consolation or comfort of God's covenant people was promised and prophesied by Isaiah in, in Isaiah 49, 13. Where he said, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. The same God who promised the eternal comfort of reconciliation through faith in Jesus Christ when we were by nature children of wrath continues to comfort us in all our affliction. He comforted us by the coming of Jesus from the penalty of sin. And he brought us into a relationship with a Father who continues to comfort us in all our affliction. Paul and his traveling companions had no rest. They were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, but God, who comforts the downcast, literally comforts the depressed, the downtrodden. How? How did he do it? The God of all comfort does this in his timing, in his way, and he usually brings his comfort through other people. So if you are longing to be comforted today, invite other people in. And maybe this comfort will come through, uh, through somebody coming alongside you and praying with you and opening the word with you. God brought comfort to Paul in this case by graciously bringing his friend and ministry partner Titus back. God brought comfort to Paul by hearing that Titus was comforted by the Corinthians. I don't know how Titus might have, I bet Titus was scared. I bet he was nervous. He's taken the severe letter to a church that is standing against his mentor Paul. And when he arrives, the church not only receives Paul and repents, but comforts Titus. And Paul, knowing that the church comforted Titus, brings him comfort. And then God brought comfort to Paul here in this situation by bringing good news that the church longed to see Paul once again. None of this comfort comes when people aren't engaging in the ministry of reconciliation and caring for one another. We're agents of God's comfort when we pray, when we write notes, when we schedule time with one another, when we open the word with one another. So we saw in verses 5 through 7 that joy came from God comforting Paul. Next we're going to see in verses 8 through 12 that Paul experienced joy as a result of other people repenting. Paul's aim in writing this severe letter was reconciliation. He takes no joy in grieving others with his words. Paul, in his directness, has a way of speaking words of life to others, not words of death. If you're like me, 
I hate to even confess this, in the moment, it might feel good to tell someone off and let them know how I really feel, especially those who have maligned me or maligned my reputation. But you know what? It's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Paul. Jesus did not revile when reviled. Verse 8, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. Paul second-guessed himself. He wrote the letter when he was deeply hurt, maybe even a little frustrated with the Corinthians for rejecting him and his whole gospel. Paul is bold and will always open his mouth to the truth, but he wants to bring life, not death. He wants to bring repentance, not resistance. So for a period of time, we don't know how long, he wondered if he had brought unnecessary grief upon the Corinthians. Have you ever done that? Have you ever wrote an email, a text, a response to a Facebook post? And then you hit send and you went, oh, wait, I'm not sure I should have done that. Like, I'm not sure, like, I'm not sure that I thought through that. A good practice before you send an email or a text or respond to a social media post is sit on it a few hours. Pray about it. Have someone else read it before you send it. I'm speaking from experience, folks. It is hard to communicate, especially um, truth and um, heart and emotion through a text, through an email, through a Facebook post. If you know, go. If you have something against one another, uh, somebody or they have something against you, don't text them. Don't email them. Maybe don't even call them. Meet with them face-to-face. -face. I've seen couples, like married couples that were counseling, like throughout the day, married couples, like texting each other. I mean, there's no, it doesn't do any good. Meet with the person. And if you do send something, even if you do meet with them, ask this question. Am I sending this? Am I meeting with this person for the glory of God and the good of the recipient or for my own glory and for my own good? A good principle to live by is if you know, go. Go and be reconciled or engage in the ministry of reconciliation on behalf of others. Paul's letter did grieve them, but only for a little while. And he doesn't rejoice that they were grieved. He rejoices that they repented. He rejoices because of what the grief produced. Verse 9, as it is, Paul says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Again, Paul doesn't rejoice because 
they were grieved. That wasn't his aim. He rejoiced because they were grieved in the repentance. He rejoiced because he knows that it proves that they now have, that they have life in Christ. You see, our repentance um, proves our salvation. Paul's aim was that the Corinthians would have a godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, not a worldly grief that produces death. Now, a couple of examples. One example of a uh, worldly grief that produces death is Judas. Judas was a man who was a disciple of Jesus Christ. Three years he walked with Jesus, was with him every minute of every day. Judas cast out demons. He did miracles. He proclaimed the gospel. He saw people come to Christ. But Judas betrayed Jesus. And, and that, that alone is not proof that he wasn't um, regenerate. But listen to this. Listen to his, um, see if you can pick out the worldly grief. Then when Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse, regret. Spoiler alert, worldly grief. And return the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See, see to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed, and he went away, and he hung himself. He did not have a godly sorrow or grief that led to repentance. He felt sorry that he caused Jesus' death. He felt sorry that he was caught. He was embarrassed, but he didn't repent. And a godly sorrow, a godly grief leads to repentance. Contrast Judas with King David, who committed adultery against Bathsheba. King David was, was the king of the modern world back in the day. He committed adultery with his neighbor. He killed her, her husband, Uriah, and then he lied about all of it. Unfortunately, David had a yoke fellow. He had a friend by the name of Nathan. Nathan risked everything, including death, to approach David and to call him out on his sin. That Nathan was an agent of reconciliation. That Nathan was living out the ministry of reconciliation with great risk to himself. And he rebuked David. And you know what David's response was in 2 Samuel 12, 13? David said, I, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan responded to him, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. And if we go to Psalm 51, we actually get an expanded version of what David said in his, after Nathan uh, rebuked him. And I'm going to read it to you. Verse 1 through 4, chapter 51. Mind you, this is after adultery, this is after murder, this is after lying. And David had a godly grief that led him to repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Verse 7 to 12, purge me with hyssop 
and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. That is a prayer of godly grief. Worldly grief leads to death, while godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Another way of saying this is that godly grief produces a repentance that is in line with our salvation. That, that those who have been saved by God's grace repent. And we reconcile. Now Paul's going to instruct the church on how, to, how godly grief produces repentance in verse 11. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. What Paul's doing here in one verse is he's laying out seven fruits of godly grief. And do you think Paul could just cram a little bit more into one, one chapter? Seven fruits of godly grief. The first fruit is earnestness. This is an earnest desire to no longer be complacent and indifferent towards your sin, but to eagerly and aggressively pursue righteousness and kill sin. Someone once said, if you're not killing sin, sin is killing you. This is an earnest desire to live for the glory of God and not for the glory of man. It not only mourns for sin, but turns from sin and finds forgiveness for sin in Christ. It mobilizes you. This this is an earnestness that mobilizes you into action. Godly grief produces a fruitful and effective emotion. Worldly grief, on the other hand, produces an earnest desire to always blame other people for your sin. The second fruit of godly grief grief is an eagerness to clear yourself. Knowing that our sin sometimes has long-term effects on others, we're eager to restore trust and confidence of others through our repentance. You see, when you sin against somebody else, they, they, they certainly, a Christian's called to forgive you, but they can't just get over it right away. It's going to take sometimes hours, days, weeks, months, and even years, depending on the sin, for them to be able to trust you again. Worldly grief, on the other hand, assumes the other party will just get over it and gets angry when they don't. The third fruit of godly grief is indignation. It's when we recognize the utter sinfulness of our hearts and have a growing hate of our sin because of the damage it does to the Lord's name, to our joy, and to our relationships. Worldly grief, on the other hand, sees the sin of others clearer than we see our own sin. And that should never be. We should never see the sins of the world greater than we see our own sin. The fourth fruit of godly grief is, is fear. A healthy fear or reverence to God and a growing desire to honor and glorify Him by reconciling with others. On the other hand, a worldly grief is sorry for a moment then continues to sin, thinking that the grace of God will continue to abound. And the fifth fruit of godly grief is a longing. We have a yearning to be reconciled with the other party, Paul in this case. Not simply a step of obedience, but a yearning to make things right. 
Worldly grief, on the other hand, um, forgives with their mouth, but is not willing to release the other party. How do you know that? Is when you walk into the grocery store and you see the person that you were supposed to forgive, and you go down the other aisle. The sixth fruit of godly grief is zeal. We have a zeal to honor and clear the name of the other party. This, is, this goes further than reconciliation. It involves restitution. It re- involves the restitution of their good name. It's, it's when you can happily defend the other party, not simply release him from his offense. Worldly grief, on the other hand, uh, might stop publicly maligning the other person, but it stops short of defending or building up that other person. And the last fruit of godly grief that we see in verse 11, thank you, Paul, is punishment. This refers to a a desire to see justice done. The repentant sinner no longer tries to protect himself, but says that whatever consequences are coming my way because of my sin, um, I gladly will gladly receive those. Worldly grief, on the other hand, is sorry that they sinned against the other person, but wants to see the other person's sins punished. And that should not be our desire. And at the end of verse 11, he says, at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this manner. This is why Paul wrote, hoping that they would repent and their repentance would prove their innocence, that they would respond in a way of one who's been justified or declared innocent by the Lord. Verse 12, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness, church, for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. We can't be sure who who the one did the wrong is. We don't know who that person is, the one who maligned Paul and turned the church against Paul, but we can assume that Paul is the one that suffered the wrong. Paul didn't write to the one who did the wrong, nor did he write to defend himself. He wrote to the church as a whole and appealed to them to open their hearts to him and to see their error and to earnestly repent. So the third point today in verses 13 through 15 is that Paul experiences joy through the joy of others. A godly grief led you to repentance, church. Verse 13, therefore we are comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice still still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Paul's a living example of where we can find joy. He didn't, he was, he was afflicted from, from the outside and from the inside, but he didn't have his head down wallowing in his own afflictions and only rejoicing um, when there's vindication. He rejoiced even more because Titus rejoiced and because his spirit was refreshed by the Corinthians. Paul walks a talk where he rejoices when other people rejoice. And I think there's times when we don't rejoice when other people rejoice. Because of things like jealousy. Paul sent Titus to deliver his severe letter to a church he had confidence in. Just as everything he wrote to the church was true, so too was Paul's confidence in the church true. He believed in them, and his belief was rooted in the confidence that the Spirit of God was working in those whom he believed were true Christians. If they were in Christ, they would repent. And when we, when we engage in the ministry of reconciliation, um, when we um, forgive, or when we confess to another believer, and we're fearful that they're not going to forgive us, we can have confidence that they are a Christian. They will forgive us. 
It's the same thing when we engage in the ministry of reconciliation and we bring two people together that have been fighting and where there's conflict and they both profess Christ. We can have confidence that there's going to be reconciliation because the Spirit of God is in that business. Verse 14 says, For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus about you, church, has proved true. And his affection, Titus's affection for you, is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Paul apparently had told Titus that he had confidence that the church would receive him with a healthy fear and would receive Paul's letter that would lead to conviction and repentance. Titus rejoiced that everything Paul said was true. And can you imagine the rejoicing that Titus would have that he would be used by the Lord in this way? What a joy to be used by the Lord to, to be a minister of reconciliation between believers. So church, as we close up, so what, now what? Monday morning, how do you respond? First of all, be reminded of the love of Christ. Be reminded that you've been fully accepted and loved, therefore obey. If you know, go. If you know, go. If you have any unreconciled relationships with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, with siblings, with a coworker, a brother and sister in Christ, if you go, if you know, go. First, forgive them before the Father. And if you have any ways that you've maligned somebody else or you've sinned against them, go to them and repent. If you're party to gossip, where one party has something against another party, go back to that person and appeal to them to reconcile. When we grab a hold of the ministry of reconciliation, we can experience joy in three surprising ways. Joy from God's comfort, joy from seeing others repent, joy in seeing others rejoice. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are the God of all joy. We thank you, God, that you it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And Lord, we thank you that um, even as I think about um, if we know, go, God, I thank you that, that you, the sovereign Lord, the creator of the universe, the king of kings, um, knew <laughs> that we needed reconciling, and you went. And I thank you, Father, that we have been reconciled and that we belong to you, and that we're no longer enemies, we're friends. And God, I pray for anybody here today that has not been reconciled. God, that you would reconcile them. That they would find hope and peace and comfort through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And they can find comfort in all their afflictions from a Father who cares. And God, would you give us the courage to engage in this ministry of, of reconciliation? First, by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are perishing without it. 
and the next to one another. That we would bring you praise and glory and honor by seeking to be reconciled one to another. We love you. We thank you that you continue to love us and that your love endures forever. And we pray these things in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.